Welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. So, you know that there were 12 disciples that Jesus called to help him. You know this, right? Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, his brother, John, Philip, Thomas, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, Judas, and Bartholomew. Did you hear that as a kid? Well, the best part is the chorus. Jesus calls us to, come on, Jesus calls us to, we are his disciples, Jesus calls us to, Jesus calls us to, Jesus calls us to, we are his disciples, Jesus calls us to, thank you. (laughs) Stop, I'll be here all week. Tip your server. Listen, that little children's song encompasses everything that this sermon series is all about. Jesus calls us to. We are his disciples. And this sermon series that I'm calling Available is about beginning to wake up to the awareness that the God who has made himself available to us comes to each of us, every man, woman, boy, and girl, desiring for us to become available back to God. That along the way, we might wake up to the divine invitation to join God in God's ongoing work of loving and redeeming and repairing the broken parts of this world. And that is a message of urgency if you ask me because I know that every time we gather here every week, someone gathers among us and it might be you, underwhelmed by the life that you're living. Going through life disappointed with kind of the flatness of life, you fear as if everything that was great and good and worth getting up in the morning is somehow behind you. You, you, you go through life or seasons of this life with what I've been calling a kind of low-grade fever of discontentment and you wonder, what's it even worth? And I say to you, that if we were to actually wake up to the awareness that the God who's been made available to us is inviting us, bidding us, calling us to join God, it would be an awareness, a waking up, a kind of great getting up morning in the soul like you've never known before. Now last week, I 
I told you that the very first thing about becoming available to God is in waking up to the awareness that God has become available to us, right? But today I wanna take it just a step further. Because becoming available to God requires mustering the courage to simply show up. To simply show up. It's amazing to me how disappointed we can remain about our lives because we never learn to show up for our lives. And the disciples, the disciples of that fun little song and the disciples of this text that we're reading, they, they showed up. So there's this story where Jesus goes to the mountain and he calls his disciples to join him on the mountain and out of the group of disciples among them, he calls 12 of them and gives them a new kind of refined calling. He, he calls them apostles and they have a certain set of responsibilities and duties and they're a little different. But sometimes we forget that Jesus had multiple disciples. In, in fact, in, in some parts of the gospel, the disciples of Jesus are referred to as multitudes or masses of men and women, both young and old, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, who along the way were so compelled by this man, by the words that he spoke, by the acts of compassion that he performed, by the way of life that he said was possible. They were so compelled that they ordered their life in a way to follow him. And we're talking masses of people. And we tend to sometimes just focus on the 12 apostles. But there's a word or a phrase in the gospels, the Greek text, the phrase is hoi polloi. I love that name or that word. Hoi polloi, it's just kind of fun to say. Hoi polloi in Greek literally means a, a multitude of ordinary people. A multitude of ordinary people. And Jesus drew multitudes of ordinary people. When I was doing undergraduate work at Carson Newman College years ago, our introductory Greek class had an intramural softball team and we called ourselves hoi polloi. <laughs> because God has a way through Christ to call ordinary people to extraordinary lives. You know what's interesting? Mike, if I had time, you know what I'd say today? I'd say a word or two about hoi polloi, about the multitude mentality because you know in places in the gospel where there are masses of people, it's interesting how early in the gospel there are masses but the closer you get to the cross, the thinner the crowd becomes. Yeah, yeah. Because the greater the risk, the smaller the crowd. I mean, it's easy to gather masses of people when you have fishes and loaves of bread to feed them. I mean, masses, multitudes, hoi polloi will show up when they get something out of it. But disciples are they who show up not to get something out of it, but to give their life to it. Yeah, yeah. And on that particular day, it's fascinating to me that on the mountain when he gathered with who knows how many disciples, he just picked 12. And out of just picking 12, we can also assume because of the sheer numbers that we read about earlier in the other gospels that there were some who maybe didn't even make it to the mountain. There were some who didn't show up on draft day. And maybe they had a number of good reasons. I mean, we hear about, you know, Peter, Simon, all the folks 
that we just named. But, but what about the disciple um, Eddie? You know Eddie, I mean, he was a mess. He loved Jesus, wanted to be there, planned to be there, but Eddie's a mess. He just can't seem to get it together. He wrote it down that it was gonna be on a Monday, but he put it on a Thursday and he, he missed it altogether. Sometimes that happens. We just can't get it together. We don't show up even though we wanted to. Or how about the disciple um, Karen? You know the disciple Karen and her family, they're so busy, they're involved in everything and everything they're involved in is in good. It's good. All the things that they do are good things, but they want it to be. They're, they're interested in Jesus. You know, they, they like to show up from time to time because when they do, it's good. He always has good things to say. They leave talking about it at lunch. It's all, always great. But the problem with Karen's family is, is that Jesus shows up at the bottom of a very long list of priorities that are just really honestly more urgent than Jesus. So she missed draft day. I don't know, there could have been a hundred different reasons why some may not have been on the mountain when he selected 12 out of them. Maybe, maybe some weren't there. (laughs) Not because they couldn't get it together like Eddie and maybe not because they were so overwhelmed with the busyness of other things like Karen, but maybe there were some who missed it and didn't show up not because they couldn't get it together and not because Jesus is at the bottom of a very long list of priorities, but maybe there were some who didn't show up that day because they knew that because of who they are and what they're able to do and what they've proven about themselves before, maybe some didn't show up because they thought, if I show up, he's gonna ask me. Sometimes we, we stay away because we know we're up for the job. Have you, ever, have you ever downplayed who you are and what you're capable of doing because you know that once they find out, everything will change? Now, you know, I've told you before that as a pastor, some of my least favorite moments or when I meet new fascinating people, new friends, new acquaintances, new colleagues, and we're having a great conversation, maybe we're having a great time having deep dialogue about some things or laughing about good jokes, and then they say, by the way, hey, what do you do for a living? I just, I hate that moment, I I do. And it's not because I'm ashamed of, of what I do, I love being pastor, and I love being your pastor. I don't know if I've told you lately, but I do. And and it's not because I'm ashamed of the gospel for the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all humankind as Paul reminds us. It's not that. It's just that when people who I meet for the first time find out that I'm a pastor, they get weird. (laughs) Right? They get weird. And their weirdness makes me act more weird. Because I symbolize, because of my vocation, every pastor they've ever known, good or bad, healthy or unhealthy. So if every pastoral experience they've had with pastors has been wonderful, and somehow they they put their pastor of their childhood on a pedestal, well, there's no way I'll ever live up to that, so all the language just gets kind of icky and weird and squishy. Or on the opposite end of that, if your experience with a pastor in the past has been negative, unhealthy, even abusive, or maybe 
spiritually irresponsible and you were introduced to faith by a pastor who was so rigid and dogmatic that it actually turns you more away from faith than it drew you to faith, then you're gonna assume all those things about me and it just gets kind of weird. So, I've learned to be a little bit more creative when somebody asks me what I do for a living. And I, I know that many of you know, we just got back from vacation and part of that vacation last month was a, a cruise, a boat. We were on a boat for a little while with our boys and, and we were assigned this table at dinner with this other family. And, and it was a great family, like a family of six and all of them had like grown children beginning with 18 years old and going on up. A couple of them were married. Uh, one was getting ready to be married. Great mom and dad, great conversation. One of them was actually a performer on the ship and they had come to see him perform in the theater on the ship. It was wonderful. And we made it like like three whole days and they never knew because we were having such normal, good, human conversations about just life. We talked about the kids and what they're majoring in. We talked about their future and the wedding plans. We talked about where they're from. We talked about my wife and how her career is so interesting, teaching culinary arts to students, taking them around the world to see how other cultures do food and And the conversation is great and we're having a good time, we're telling great jokes, we're laughing until we're crying. I mean, it's wonderful. And on about night three or four, Sean, I don't don't think we've talked about what you do for a living. Nathan, my oldest son, is sitting next to me and kicking me under the table (laughs) as if to say, Dad, don't, don't, don't do it. And then, Using some material I totally stole from another pastor I heard use this, I said, oh, it's not, nah, it's not that interesting. Not as interesting as culinary arts, I'll tell you that much. It's, you know. And then they said, no, no, but what do you do? I said, um, well. See, I, I lead a, a, a nonprofit organization. <laughs> yeah. and, and it's really kind of a global enterprise. Um, we, we literally have like outlets all over the world, almost in every country of the world. And, and what we do is we organize people around like communities that are designed for transformation, you know, communities where we work on reconciliation and peace work, peacemaking, we work on justice issues of every kind. And, and I work for this nonprofit where we have like hospitals and hospices and homeless shelters, we have orphanages and feeding programs. Basically, I said to them, we look after people from birth until death the end. They were looking at me with their jaw down. And of course, my boys were trying not to burst with laughter. They're like crying and looking away at their shoes and and the blank stares looking back. And I said, yeah, that's us. I'm a pastor of a church. And they said, we knew it. We could tell on day one. Right? I said, oh, God, okay. Yeah. But listen, on on a somewhat very reduced scale, I know in a small way what it feels like to want to downplay who you are. Because there are times when who you are and what you can do 
can change everything. And on that mountain that day, Jesus called his disciples and some didn't come, but some of them didn't come not because they couldn't get their schedule together and not because Jesus was at the bottom of a long list of priorities. I promise you, some didn't come because they knew that if they showed up, everything would change. Two of them we read about at the end of the gospel of John. In John chapter 19, would you hear these words? John chapter 19, verse 38, fascinating. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, though a secret one, because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate to let him take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and removed his body. Nicodemus, who at first had come to Jesus by night, by night, under the cover of darkness and the shadows, under the cover of anonymity, he had come and also uh, he was bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes weighing about 100 pounds. They took the body of Jesus, wrapped it with the spices in linen cloths according to the burial custom of the Jews. Now there was a garden in the place where he was crucified and in that garden there was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And so because it was the Jewish day of preparation and the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. At the end of the Gospel of John, when we read about the post-crucifixion burial of Jesus, you would get the impression that John is in a hurry to tell you about the details because the sun is setting and when the sun sets, they can't work like that on the Sabbath. And so there is a kind of urgency in the burial process and he doesn't waste a lot of time talking about the details of the burial except what's curious to me is he spends in the course of those four verses that we just read, he spends an inordinate amount of time describing the two people who showed up to bury Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple, though a secret one, for fear of the Jews. And Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night, in these four verses, there are 113 words. And of the 113 words, 23 of them describe in editorial detail who it was who buried Jesus. That's 20% of the entire sweep of that passage. And if John is in such a hurry to tell you everything that happened before the sun goes down, why would he spend as much time detailing these two disciples. If he could put it on a computer screen, he would hyperlink their names in blue and you would hover over it and you would click and see why. It's because these two disciples who surprisingly showed up at the cross were secret disciples. They had downplayed who they were because of where they served and who knew their name. You know, in places where Jesus says hard things, and he says a few of them, one time he said, if you confess me before human beings, I will confess you before my Father in heaven, but if you deny me before human beings, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. That's tough 
language. And I'm like, secret? Disciples? Or in another place, if any wish to be my disciples, they must first deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Secretly? And yet I understand a little bit, right? Because these two men were powerful, wealthy, influential people who held seats of significance in their community. I mean, did you notice a minute ago, Joseph goes to Pilate and barely whispers the request, can I have his body? Sure. You don't get to that level of influence without having some street cred behind your name. They knew who he was. Secret disciples. They they were members of the Pharisees, which meant they had spent their life in preparation and in study of the law, and they were members of the Sanhedrin, the elite, most revered governing council, the highest court in the land when it comes to Judaism, their, their faith. They were sitting members of this committee. Don't forget that it was the Sanhedrin that had a small secret subcommittee involved in plotting to kill Jesus. It was from the Sanhedrin that a few of the members went in together with 30 pieces of silver and approached Judas to betray our Lord with a kiss. And these were two sitting members of this this council and yet along the way with all that influence and power, their hearts had been melted by this man. He heard the things that he said, he, he transformed them by the things that he did and yet they couldn't be open about it until that day. Do you know what it's like to feel the tension in the heart between the life that you are living and, and the life that you know God wants you to live? And you can feel their struggle earlier in the Gospels because there are some powerful moments. Long before this crucifixion, there's this one story where they're trying to arrest Jesus. And so members of the Sanhedrin are like communicating with themselves. And one is saying to the other, why isn't he in jail yet? Why is he not behind bars? This guy is still out causing trouble. Why is he walking the streets? And Nicodemus a card-carrying member of the Sanhedrin, but with voting power, almost awkwardly says, well, hang on, hang on. You know, our law, you know, doesn't judge people without, you know, first giving them a hearing, right? I mean, to find out what they're doing, does it, right? I mean, I'm just here about the law, you know. I love that moment. Nicodemus is like, that's what the law says. I mean, I'm not, I'm not one of them. I'm just saying, let's, let's be careful about this. So you see the tension in Nicodemus. In another place where Joseph is introduced, not in John's gospel, but in Luke's gospel, here's how, uh, uh, Luke, here's how Luke describes him. Now, there was a good man, a righteous man named Joseph who, I love this phrase, though a member of the council had not agreed to their plan of action. Nicodemus and Joseph represented the votes of dissent against the majority in that council and yet found a way to walk the narrow line, not letting anyone know really where their heart was and it was killing them. 
Do you know what that's like? To sense something down deep in the interior that God wants from you, but you know that this is the way life is and these are the constructs and the barriers of my life. It's been constructed this way. I can't possibly do the thing that I sense God wanting me to do, so there's a tension I have to live with and I just can't show up in the way that I sense maybe God wants me to show up. It reminds me of the poem by William Stafford called Ask Me. Listen to these words. Sometime when the river is ice, ask me mistakes I've made. Ask me whether what I have done is my life. Others have come in their slow way into my thought and some have tried to help or hurt. Ask me what difference their strongest love or hate has made. I'll listen to what you say. You and I can turn and look at the silent river and wait. We know the current is there hidden and there are comings and goings from miles away that hold the stillness exactly before us. What the river says, that is what I say. It's as if he goes down to the river at wintertime. Do you know what it's like to go down to the river at wintertime and see the surface is frozen because of the cold temperatures and there's a, there's a, there's a solidity about the top of the, the, the river. It's firm, it's not moving, it's frozen. But yet you know that down beneath the frozen surface there is this flow, there is this, this river, this current that's going and coming all the time and does... Does that image speak to where you are in your life? Do you know what it's like to feel as if your life is this frozen surface, a kind of frozen river on the top, and you know that if you can just find a crack in the surface of the ice, then all of that life will come teeming up and life will really matter to you at that point. Do you know what it's like to need to find the crack in the ice? When Parker Palmer reflected about that particular poem, this is what he said. The poem reminds me of moments when it is clear, if I have the eyes to see, that the life I am living is not the life that wants to live in me. Do you know what it feels like for the life that you are living to not be the same thing as the life that wants to live in you? Don't look now. But if you know that tension, that's the beginning of the call of God. And you can do two things there at that frozen river of you. <laughs> you can look at the surface and assume too much would have to change for that river to come up and, and for it to flow like I know I want it to flow. It, too much would have to happen and I would have too much to risk if I actually really showed up. So you have two choices. You can walk away from the river and let it remain frozen and hide in the shadows where it's cool and safe. Or you can look for a crack in the surface. Joseph and Nicodemus found the crack in the ice. It was the cross of Jesus. And seeing our Lord take his final breath changed everything. They could keep quiet 
no longer. They knew that everything he had ever said was true and they knew that everything that he ever did was real and everything he ever was was everything that ever mattered. And now some of their own had beaten the life out of Jesus and they see him hanging there on a tree and it changes everything for them. The cross of Christ was like a a cosmic crack in the frozen river of humankind and mustering courage and conviction like they never had before, they allowed themselves to emerge through the crack in the ice and they revealed to all the world, we are with him. He belongs to us and we belong to him and taking his broken body, wrenching it from the cross. They take his body lifeless and bury it in a tomb because for them, all bets are off. This was their public confession of faith. It's interesting what'll happen when you see what happened. It's interesting what you're willing to do when you see what has been done for you. It's interesting to me how much we're willing to give once we see what has been given for us. The cross of Jesus Christ was God's most vulnerable expression of becoming available to us. How can we remain unavailable to him this moment for for? Joseph and for Nicodemus was the moment they told the world, we are with him. We are available. What will it take to crack the ice for you?